So this morning we take a little bit of break. What we, what we are normally doing, and as you know, we're working through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're in a, chapters 11. We'll finish up chapter 11 next week. But our students has had a couple days, and we've been talking about worldview, what is a worldview, and what is a biblical worldview. And we've used a, uh, don't like to take my glasses off because I can't have C. We've been, we tried to help understand worldview through uh, a pair of glasses. We said that these are welding glasses. If, if you've ever looked through any of them, you all look sort of darkly green and a little fuzzy because I, I'm an old man, can't see anyway. And so worldview is a conceptual, not a real, a conceptual pair of glasses that people see and interpret, understand, and live out their life. And so you go to work and talk to people, and sometimes you're describing different things in your life, and it's like they're looking through these glasses, and you're saying, you're just not seeing what I'm seeing. The answer is, no, they're not. And so, well, I can see better, see. It pays to have the right set of glasses on. One, uh, one man said it even better than glasses. It is the very optical lens that people see from. And so this is, message is sort of a culmination of everything over the weekend, just trying to pull it all together. Some of most of this you're going to be hearing for the first time. Our students have heard some of this already, but we're going to bring it all together because the reason we need to know what we believe and why we believe it and be able to communicate that is because of the supremacy of Christ. This is the main idea today. The Christian worldview magnifies Christ as supreme, not man. And even when I say that, I, you need to understand that the people that you live life with, this is either offensive or ridiculous. And yet God has called you to engage them. And so what is the world that we live in? What is the predominant worldview? It is the postmodern worldview. Nothing more than a fresh spin on the old secular humanism that has been around forever. And yet it has a, some distinction. It is post-God, post-truth, post-morality, and post-authority. The postmodern worldview seeks to undermine truth, Authority and morality. It hates them both. It is trying to tear them down right now. And it's doing a fairly good job. So what is truth? Living in a world that's predominantly this postmodern. Have we really grew out of God? That's what we spent this weekend talking about. We read articles from King's Mountain. That had to do with this problem of worldview. Students talked about it. They thought hard about it, of what a biblical worldview is. What is our, as Christians, our non-negotiable authority? We talked to them and tried to understand one thing, if they didn't learn anything else, that the Bible's not a bunch of little stories that has to do with you. It is one big story, and it has to do with the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's what we talked about. And I hope you, the students got that. We live in a meta-narrative. And God, the God before everything has written it, and we are a part of it. And so this morning, I just want to try to bring it all together with God's Word. And so let's turn to Colossians 1, verse 15. I know no better verse to look at today. Colossians 1, verse 15, let's stand 
to our feet. We'll read verse 22. Now, students, before we read this, last night before we closed, we talked about how could God be sovereign and yet there's still evil in this world. Your students, just rising, even sixth graders, discussed this issue and had much input into it. Let's not remember, forget students, that Paul, as he writes this letter, is in prison at the hands of evil men. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, now that you have heard your word, and Lord, we are finite and fallible and tired and all these things, Lord, we are not you. And so, no, Lord, we need your help today to understand these things. We need to see clearly the world that we live in, the world we are called to evangelize and to love and to reach them with the gospel. Help us, God, to see your supremacy in all things today. Oh, God, if there is one in this room that has on a pair of glasses that is distorting the reality, of the way it is, Lord, would you take them off through the power of the Holy Spirit and through your word and put on your perspective. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Jesus, who is the truth. Amen. You can be seated. I want to give credit to where credit is due. We've done a lot of studying and preparation for the study for the students. And a, a man named Vody Balkum has had a huge impact on the study. His preaching and his books have been invaluable for this. I just want to say that up front. And encourage you, if this interests you, to, to, to look, at, look at him and, and study some of the things that he's written. So when we think about reality, we have... God, and we have ourselves on one side, and we have knowledge, we have ethics, morality, our values on the other side, and right in the middle, if you see your notes, uh, capitalized it, and you have this issue of truth. We said that the postmodern, the worldview of this day, hates that. That's, that's the primary place of attack. You can undermine truth. If you could turn truth into whatever you want it to be, Life in your life becomes almost like a wax nose. And so there's two dominant worldviews of our day and our culture. One is Christian theism. There is one God, sovereign and good, and he has revealed himself in the second person 
of the co-equal, co-eternal Godhead, and His name is Jesus Christ. That is Christian theism. But there's another dominant worldview in our culture, and it's postmodern. It is the secular humanist. They are the naturalist. They believe that nature is all there is. There is no God. There is no supernatural. We are on our own to make it the best we can. So what is Christian theism's answer to God and man and truth and knowledge and ethics? And what is the postmodern? We see for Christian theism, God's the starting point. He is necessary being. He is independent. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful and He is all-benevolent. Man is, in Christian theism is the special creation created in the image of God. And yet we are dependent on our sovereign. We believe in an open system where God the supernatural can work in time and space. And He did because He sent His Son. Therefore, we believe truth is absolute, it is knowable, it is objective, and so is ethics and morality. Because we believe in in an authority that reveals not only God's character, but His will. And it is that that we derive how we live and how we treat each other. That's Christian theism's answer to God and man and truth and knowledge and Ethics, but what is the postmodern? What is the secular humanist? How, how do they answer these questions? Well, they're atheistic. There is no God. And so man is the starting point. And listen this morning, and it's may ruffle, it's just visibly true that in King's Mountain, in this Bible belt with, with churches on every corner, this is the dominant view. And you say, oh no, hold on, I can, I can walk around all day. And people said, we love Jesus. Though most say they believe in God, they live with themselves in the center of their world. And even those who go to church, go to church and church doesn't make much of you, you just leave and go to another church. This is a secular, a postmodern worldview living itself out. You see, not by what we say, but by how, what we, how we see, understand, and live out reality. Many Christians are simply functional atheists, putting God in the attic of their spiritual house as they live their regular life for themselves. This is what the postmodern secular humanist does, because there is no God but what do they believe about themselves? This is really encouraging. Man is a cosmic accident. We just chaotically evolved by chance with no design, no thought, no plan. Therefore, truth is nature. Truth is the cosmos. Truth is science. We live in a closed system that, with no intervention because there is no God. The material is all there, there is. And so truth is about materialism. Who needs the supernatural? They don't exist and we wouldn't allow them in our world if they, if they did. Truth is subjective. It is centered on me and my desires. What about ethics? It's cultural and it is negotiable. History and time and culture negotiates its own ethics. Hitler, we cannot say, was wrong. He was simply negotiating his own ethics. 
He was living out his worldview. Richard Dawkins, when asked, what is the rules of the game in this world where everybody believes different, says this, people can live however they want to, provided they don't impose their beliefs on others. Listen to this. He's then asked by, the, by, a, by a person, interview him. Well, let me give you an illustration. Let's say these people start a private school because they want to teach their children a particular thing. Are, is that school and those parents allowed to teach their children? What do you think he said? He said children should not be indoctrinated by their parents with their incredulous beliefs, but should be educated by the state and naturalism whether their parents like it or not. And whether you realize it, that's exactly what's happening in the public school system and in the colleges right now. For they are living out their worldview. That's why we talked about that with your students. That's why I invited the rising sixth graders to think hard about what they believed. Do they know what they believe? Can, do they know why they believe it? And can they communicate it? But I ask you as parents today, and as grandparents, and as people, do you? I asked the students last night, Someone asks you, what is the gospel? What are you going to say? What are you going to say? If we don't, if we don't know why, what we believe and why we believe it, then we will fall prey to the postmodern worldview. Your kid's school right now is tilling their minds like a farmer does a field, and they are planting something in there. What are you planting? You see, all people ask questions. Everybody does. You can, we can get on a plane, we will, in a few weeks and go to Honduras. They're asking the same questions. We're going to go here in the summer to Maine. They're asking the same questions. We talked about those questions this weekend. They can couch them in different ways. They're all the same. Who am I? Why am I here? What's wrong with this world? Something's wrong, but what is it? And how can it be made right? What can we do? Anything? Everybody wants to ask questions of origin and purpose and destiny. Everybody does. So how does the culture answer these questions? That's what I want to do today. And then we're going to open our Bibles and say how we answer them. We've said it when we look at God, man, truth, knowledge, and ethics. But how do we answer it in a question? The postmoderns answer it this way. Who am I? You are Nothing. If you believe in a secular humanism, you are an accident. You are a mistake. You are nothing but a glorified hamster. You say, hamster? I thought you was going to say ape or something. Let me explain. This is the image I had. When I moved out on my own, thought it was going to be wonderful. It didn't take long for me to get very, very broke and very lonely. And so I went through this little phase where I started getting all these ridiculous animals. You know? I mean, I had birds and snakes and it's another story the snake came after the hamster but I'll let you figure that one out so I got two hamsters I thought you know I work long hours come home they'd play around you know go with them little plastic balls from the from the run around you know and it went fine for a day until Mr. Mr. Hamster number one woke up with a little bit of a bellyache just didn't feel good just wasn't his little spry self like he was and so here's what happened the other hamster he got up on his hind legs, he went over there to the water. He scooped it up with his little feet. He went over there and he put it in his mouth of that little sick hamster. He went over to his food and he said, here, you know. Is that what he did? 
What did he do? He killed him. That's what he did. Now we laugh at that, brothers and sisters, but this is the postmodern secular worldview. You are nothing but a glorified hamster. And you are more evolved, so you have greater abilities to act on your nature than that little hamster did. And you know what? History's proven us right. Richard Dawkins, again, I'm picking on him because he is the new atheist of the day. Gets a lot of airtime if you look in those circles. As talking about the meaning of life, somebody said, People frequently, this article, ask Richard Dawkins, why do you bother getting up in the morning if the meaning of life boils down to such a cruel, pitiless fact that we exist merely to help replicate a string of molecules? As he puts it, they say to me, how can you bear to be alive if everything is so cold and empty and pointless? Listen to what he says. Well, at an academic level, I think it is. But that doesn't mean you can live your life like that. This is the worldview of academia. Life is pointless and meaningless unless you infuse it with some kind of purpose that because the facts is science doesn't mean anything anyway. We, the rocks and the hamsters, are merely random evolutionary processes. According to the postmodern secular humanist, that's who you are. You're a glorified hamster. Why are you here? Well, you're here to consume it. Consume and enjoy. Remember, they're naturalists. The material is all there is. So we need to get more stuff. We need to have more power. Think about the hamster. What happened the minute, minute Mr. Hamster number one died? Well, hamster number two looked around in his kingdom and said, more water, from, more food for me. Look at all these little shavings I got. They're all mine. To share my bed, I don't have to share my food. I was more powerful than them, so I had the obligation to remove him as a problem. He was in the way of my satisfaction. What drove the Nazis to practice their science? On people. It's the same thing that the doctors use when they kill the babies today. These people get in our way. We are the strongest. And we have the right and the obligation to remove anything that gets in the way of my comfort, my enjoyment, my satisfaction. And if I got the power, I have the obligation as the greater of the evolutionary species to dominate the weak. This is what Margaret Sanger believes. If you don't know her, you ought to study her because she's the one who started Planned Parenthood. She did it to carry out her worldview to destroy African Americans that she counted inferior. And she got pastors in those communities to buy into her genocide. And that still goes on today in the poorest communities of this world, preying on the weak. Because that's exactly what secular humanism believes. What is wrong with this world? How does secular humanists answer that? How can it be made right? How do they answer these questions? Because we all ask them. Well, the problem, if you ask them, is out there. Somewhere. But don't, don't fear. 
Don't fear. Don't worry about it. We got the secular humanists. We got the answer. What is the answer? This world is insufficiently educated and we are inadequately governed. Therefore, how can, how can what's out there be made right? We need better education and we need better government. Better government is whichever one that suits their individual needs. Think about this for a minute. Think about greed in the secular worldview. It is absolutely okay to gamble. Why? Because the money goes to education. And education is the problem anyway. What you see the worldview. The problem is not greed. The problem is not covetous heart. As long as we give the money to education so people can get better at their greed and covetousness, it's absolutely fine. What do you do when you educate a criminal? Should I take the hamster and say, buddy, you really need to go to sensitivity class. And so I'm going to send you and get you a four-year degree. So I sent him to hamster college. Four years later, he comes back and I put another poor little weak hamster in there. What's he going to do? He's just going to kill him right slowly, right easily, so no, there's no witnesses. He's just not going to bite him in the neck. This is the worldview. What's wrong with the world? Government? Oh, no. Have you been watching the news? Tried to watch one of those hearings or something? Oh, my goodness. It's terrible. I don't care where you stand. It's just not encouraging. I mean, singing about Jesus today, I'm sitting there going, praise the Lord. This is my Father's world. (laughs) The result of this, this is important. You ever wonder why the rich and powerful end up on a bed of suicide? They have everything and nothing to stop them from accomplishing what this worldview says you're supposed to accomplish. It ends in what we call nihilism, which is just a belief that everything is meaningless and hopeless. And what's the point? So how do we answer it? How do we answer? How does Christian theism answer these same questions? Well, here's where we start. I don't have an answer outside of this. But in God's Word, I do have an answer. So let's look at our text. All that just to say, this is important today. Colossians 1, 15 to 16. This is our authority. Look what it says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. Who am I? Notice we answer the question, how? He is. You see that? That's where we start. My starting point is the supremacy of Christ and to answer the question. When you have doubts and you have anxieties, here's your starting point. Who am I? We start with, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He was before me. He created me. Christ is supreme. You see the text over all creation, whether we see it or not. He created all things through Him and for Him. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Genesis 127, God created man and woman in his own image. Who am I? 
John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt with us. This is how we know who we are. Because God, the Son, incarnated Himself to display God to a people and to represent us. Who am I? Who are you today? Listen. If you read that article that came out today, the things that are happening in Kings of the Mountain, who is she? We are the crowning glory of the creation of God. That's who we are according to the... We are no accident. We have all people, whether you are half formed or fully formed, you have an errant value and dignity because you are created by the Creator. Christian theism has no understanding of racism and singer's eugenics. Hold on a second, Pastor. What about slavery? Right? Didn't people who embraced slavery at one time say they believed in this? I love what Vody Balcom answers this question. He says, narrative is not normative. So we've got to ask the question. When that question comes to us, help me, help me understand what stopped it. What stopped it? What drove men like William Wilberforce to fight against these kinds of things? Let me read a passage to you. I think it will help you understand. Acts 17 and verse 26 says this, And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. It was the supremacy of Christ and the very Word of God that caused the men to look at the world that they was living in and says, How in the world can you believe in this book and treat people in the image of God that way? How was it corrected? How was it deemed wrong? Not by secular humanism. It was deemed wrong by the supremacy of Christ in truth. This is God's Word. This is how He created us. Who am I? I am the crowning glory of the image of God. And why are you here today? Well, see, here's where we as Christians can oftentimes sort of put on, just for a brief period of time, in different points in our life, more of a secular worldview. Can I ask you a probing question? How do you feel about kids? I'm not talking about what you say when somebody asks you, but sometimes people will do it tongue in cheek. Do you see kids as a gift or as a burden, as a blessing or as a blight? Do you see them as some, something that are the greatest gifts of God or something that just gets in the way of your standard of living? That's why we only have, what, 1.6 kids or something sometimes? It is oftentimes because we have embraced a worldview. Who am I? Well, Christian theism answers it. Look at verse 17 and 18. Supremacy of Christ on the top. He's the he's in all this. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Verse 18 and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn of the dead. Why? That in everything he might be preeminent. You notice the text. Christ's supremacy and his preeminence is, listen, it's over everything in life. 
and everything in death. Do you see it? Life and death doesn't matter. He's the first and the best. When he entered time and space, he existed before time and space. He was the firstborn of the dead. He's the firstborn of those resurrected from the dead. He is preeminent in everything. And yet we send our children to go to college so that they can get the best degrees, to get the best jobs, to make the most money and pursue what we call the American dream. God, help us if our children get to college age and this is what they think because if they do, they do not have a Christian worldview. What if they thought that their gifts and abilities are given to them by their Jesus? He has given it to them by them and for Him. All they are and all the knowledge that they gain, they become more stewards to use that knowledge to make Him look good in life. What if they entered college with that? What if they made college decisions or not college decisions based off the understanding that the goal of education in their life is to make much of Jesus Christ? Yes, brothers and sisters, this is how we answer the question. Because you see, Christian theism answers the question, why am I here? I am here to bring glory and honor to the one who created me. And listen, when we engage people who do not see it that way, so are they. They are created in the image of their creator. And they are created by him and for him. I had a uh, person who when I first started teaching a uh, growth group, we planted a as y'all know, we planted our church from Parkwood in Gastonia five years or so. It was years ago I started teaching. And there was a guy um, who had a son, or a daughter rather, and he was, she had Down syndrome. And I got, I got him one day to just give his testimony. And we, we were just a snotty mess by the, by the end of it. Because you see, the doctor said you need to abort that child. He's going he's to have severe problems. Just, just abort it, but they wouldn't do it. He bared witness to what a blessing that child was in her life. And I can still remember up there in the worship service, looking over there, seeing that little girl worship her Lord. That's the Christian worldview. She has the capacity to bring glory and honor to her Jesus, just like she is. And that she does. What is wrong with the world? How does Christian theism answer this question? You are. What's wrong with the world? You. We are what's wrong with the world. Look at Colossians 1.21. And you, who is you? The church. <laughs> and you once were. Where's good news? You once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. We are the crowning glory of the image of God, and yet we are hostile in mind to the very one who created us, who not only created us, but gave us a purpose. There's not a one of us who haven't questioned evil and suffering. We talked about that last night. We ask it many ways. Basically, we're asking, why does bad stuff happen? 
But you see, it's hard to answer the question until we understand the supremacy of Christ and the sinfulness of man. We don't want to think about those things. I love, again, quoting Balcom when he was asked this question by students. said, here's the right question. <laughs> I love this. It was too good just to just quote it. How can a holy God know what I did yesterday and not kill me in my sleep last night? He said, that's the right question. You see, that's the problem with the postmodern worldview. When they answer the question this way, the problem is out there. Christian theism says no. We begin by saying that we as fallen people who were created in His image, but yet sinned and refused. No other aspect of creation refuses to obey its Creator. Only man, we refuse it. Therefore, we deserve the wrath of God. And we sit around at night and wonder why it did not consume us before we believed. You either believe ultimately in the supremacy of man or the supremacy of Christ. You either believe in the supremacy of man that says, How dare God not be good to me? How dare God not use His sovereign power for me, for my benefit, for my prosperity, for my personal consumption, my joy, and to fulfill my plans for my life? That's the supremacy of man. Or do you believe in the supremacy of Christ? How dare I steal what belongs to Him? What belongs to Him? Everything. What belongs to Him? I do. My very life. How dare I presume on His grace? How dare I claim to be entitled to mercy? That's, that's the right starting point, you see. Now we can begin to ask the questions. The problem with what's wrong with the world is I don't acknowledge the supremacy of Christ. I judge something as unfair when God fails to carry out my agenda for my life and my world. We oftentimes want a God that is all-powerful, but not sovereign. So how can what is wrong be made? This is the good news. How can what is wrong? This is what we've been waiting for. How can what is wrong be made right? Look at Colossians 1. Look at verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see... Christian theism recognized something. Do you see it in verse 22? We have a need. You should have felt that when we started talking about what's wrong with the world, right? We have a need. We need, what does the verse say? We need to be reconciled. You see, there is a sovereign creator who created us to worship and honor and to enjoy Him. Instead, we wanted to place ourselves as God. And we rebelled against our Creator. We are not at peace with God. We have need to be reconciled. Notice in this verse, he not only talks about our redemption, he gives us our what we call what we talked about this weekend, our glorification, our consummation. He gives us our end. Do you see it? It is to be with Christ without sin and to stand before him. Listen. This is good news. 
The promise of our redemption is one day I will stand before the Lord without shame, without guilt, without sin. And my God loves me and approves of me right now. And He has guaranteed that. How? It's good news. Amen. How? How can God make this right? You can't make it right. We talked about that this weekend. You cannot take the glasses off of somebody else's face. That's the Holy Spirit's God job. We declare the truth of our worldview. How can what is wrong be made right? Look at verse 20. Through Him. There's the answer. How can what is wrong be made right? Through Him. To reconcile to Himself. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of His cross. How can what is wrong be made right? Through the penal, substitutionary, wrath-removing death of Jesus Christ. That is the only way that what is wrong could be made right. Other religions, even those who, who put the brand Christianity, promise you an experience can make things right. What you do, you're basically a good person. You just need a little bit of these good stories in the Bible to help you live better. No. You see, Romans 3 says we can't be good. That even when we do good, we do it with bad motives. And listen, that's not good. Yet when we hear such news of such ability to reconcile us to a holy and sovereign God and to present us before Him spotless and without blame. We would naturally say, well, what about my past? You don't know what I've done. What about my pain? What about my anxiety? What about those who have abused me and neglected me? Or what about those that I've hurt? Where, pastor, is my assurance? And I say your assurance is in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So turn with me. Romans chapter 3. I just don't know any better place to go. Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. Look at verse 23. This is not only our reality, brothers and sisters. This is everybody in the world's reality. For all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over the former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. All have fallen. Verse 23. Verse 24. We are declared righteous, justified as a gift of His grace. We are purchased back from the slavery of sin. Verse 24. By the redemption of the blood of Jesus Christ. That God put forward His own Son. Verse 25. To propitiate, to remove the wrath of God. And bring in the mercy of God. By His blood. And it must be received by faith. 
passed over it in the former times. Why? That by the name of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament believers and the New Testament believers are all saved by faith in Jesus Christ. He is the just one and He is the justifier. The question we have to ask ourselves then, is that enough for our sin? Listen, you need to ask that question this morning. Is that enough for others' sin who have sinned against you? Is who we are in Jesus Christ enough to help us when we're struggling with our anxiety? Is it enough that God gave you a son for you to not just get you out of hell, but to adopt you into a family and to give you an inheritance that he was the firstborn of? The blood of Christ is enough. What can take away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Christ. So what today? Am I resting and rejoicing in the supremacy of Christ? This should bring to you today, to you as Christians, with the biblical worldview, two things at least. (laughs) Rest and rejoicing. I was in need of rest last night. I woke up, didn't even know what day it was. I had to say, oh, my goodness. I preached yesterday. It's not Sunday. It is. It is Sunday. We're in need of rest. Everybody is in need of spiritual rest. Have you placed your faith in this life and for eternity in Jesus Christ alone? If not, right now, right now, you need to repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Students, if that's not true, if everything you've talk, we've talked about this weekend, it seems like somebody you're reading somebody else's mail, you need to repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to see something. Turn with me to Revelation 1. I'm reading through Revelation just in my personal time. I've just been really enjoying chapter just. Just this first part of chapter 1. John 1, verse 4. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to Him who loves us and freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him and all tribes on the earth will well on account of Him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Are you rejoicing in this today? Look at the text. Are you rejoicing Christ's Lordship over you because, brothers and sisters, this is who you are? Look at the end of verse 5. Are you rejoicing that your sins are forgiven? Because of what He's done? Are you rejoicing, verse 5, because you're, you've been freed from the bondage of sin? 
You're here to bring glory and honor to Him, not your sin and self, and now you have the ability to. Are you rejoicing in verse 6? That now we have direct access to the King of glory. Verse 7, are you rejoicing that in one day all that is wrong will be made right because He is coming to get His own? And even those who, who pierced Him will bow before His Lordship. Brothers and sisters, on that day, He will make all things right. And we do not rejoice in the death of the wicked. But here's what we are rejoicing in. That God is a God of both love and justice. And He has promised today when He will consummate all things. All things. Someone asked a question, how can God see wickedness and do nothing? Here's where you need to go as a Christian. God's not doing nothing. God says He sees the suffering of His saints and the bowl of His wrath is being filled. And on that day, He will come to get His own and He will pour out the wrath on those who have done wicked in this world. Brothers and sisters, this is the day is the day of salvation. Today is the day to put your faith in Jesus Christ and be reconciled and adopted into the family of God. Revelation 14 verse 13 says this, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, listen, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Brothers and sisters, God has provided for us a spiritual rest. And we live in that rest. And as you grow in your faith, that rest gets more sweet. Especially in suffering. One day, our faith will be sight. And our sin and suffering will be no more. But today, we say as Paul says, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Brothers and sisters, let's, let's live by this. Let's rejoice in this. Let's rest in this. Let your children see you laboring for the supremacy of Christ. Let us take the good news of the supremacy of Christ to those who do not know how to answer the questions. Let us answer it with one thing. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. And more important, Lord. Thank you that, that we're in a family. Thank you for the amazing truth that I can get on a plane and fly halfway across the world and go into a group of believers gathered together. They may be sitting on buckets on, under a shed. and There's my family. But thank you for the local church. Thank you that we got to see our students worship the Lord and that they thought hard about you this weekend. Oh God, would you plant that deep in their minds and in their hearts? Would you produce a harvest from that? Would you produce in their life 
this Acts 2 community that loves the Lord with all their heart and loves the church and has a desire to evangelize this world. Oh God, do it here. Do it in us. Protect us from being influenced by the world in which we live and let us, let your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And now, Lord, we desire to worship you and your Son and your triunity, Lord. Receive our worship now as we stand to your feet. All God's people said, Amen.